Good evening and welcome to the show. Yesterday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau started to reverse the narrative that he had so enthusiastically espoused during his country's COVID vaccine rollout. And you have to think the same will happen here, the same reversal will happen here in Australia any day now. The event was a public forum for a small group of students at a university in Ottawa, where Trudeau and visiting German president Frank-Walter Steinmeier spouted platitudes about their commitment to democracy. Coincidentally, Ottawa is where truckers gathered in January last year to protest against government mandates that required them to take the experimental COVID vaccines in order to work. We'll discuss how toxic those vaccines were later in the show, which will explain why the truckers were so reluctant to take them. Trudeau responded back then by declaring the truckers' protest dangerous, invoking the National Emergency Act and sending in troopers armed with batons and pepper spray to break it up. He also froze the bank accounts of people who had donated to help the truckers, many of whom were struggling at the time to put food on the table. But none of those people were invited to witness Trudeau rewrite history yesterday. Here he is. And therefore, while not forcing anyone to get vaccinated, I chose to make sure that all the incentives and all the protections were there to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated. And here he is saying exactly the opposite in October 2021. The bottom line, proof of vaccination will be required by no later than the end of this month for all federal employees. And by mid-November, enforcement measures in place will make sure that everyone is vaccinated. This is about keeping people safe on the job and in their communities. And the same goes for the second commitment we made, mandatory vaccination on travel. By the end of October, everyone 12 or older on a plane or train within Canada should be fully vaccinated. And here he is saying the vaccines are safe. I can reinforce once again that every single vaccine available in Canada has been approved by Health Canada as being both safe and effective. Well, the evidence against that claim is now incontrovertible. So yesterday, Trudeau also took a couple of baby steps to distance himself from it. There are potential side effects in vaccinations. And there are you know, are people who've probably gotten very sick from vaccinations. So sick that they died, as we will hear about soon. Of course, Trudeau wasn't discarding the whole COVID na narrative. He reminded his audience that the pandemic was the worst medical crisis in a century and that people died from, quote, not getting vaccinated. Well, excess death statistics for the years when Trudeau and other leaders, including every single senior politician in Australia, were coercing citizens to take the vaccines, suggest this too is untrue. 
But Trudeau and his fellow dictators are relying on their bureaucracies to sit on the data long enough until ordinary people get sick of the topic and want to move on. Senators Alex Antich, Jared Rennick and Ralph Babbitt and former Senator Rex Patrick have all hit major obstructions in their attempts to get their hands on data that they know exists and which will shed light on the efficacy, or lack thereof, of the vaccines and their adverse effects. We are relying on these politicians to ultimately get their hands on this data because the mainstream media isn't interested. Here is what Tucker Carlson, a relatively lone voice on this topic, said on his show on Fox News on January 26. If you really want to understand how powerful Big Pharma is, consider the news that did not break today. The pro-transparency news organization, Project Veritas, just released an undercover video of a Pfizer executive bragging on camera about how his company conducts a kind of Frankenstein science manipulating COVID viruses for profit, imperiling potentially the entire world, doing it in secret, possibly in violation of federal law, bragging about this. No other media outlet has covered the story at all. We checked. MSNBC and CNN, which perhaps not coincidentally take huge amounts of advertising dollars from Pfizer, those two channels have devoted a total of zero seconds to the story. We'll just go online and find out about it. Well, Google, the biggest search engine in the world, which has a monopoly on search in this country, appears to have gone out of its way to make it much more difficult for users to learn anything about the Pfizer executive pictured in the footage. And so there is, in other words, on television and in most places online, a near total media blackout of this story. How powerful is Big Pharma? That powerful. Actually, it's even more powerful, uh, more powerful than that as it happens. As you've probably heard, Carlson was sacked from Fox News on the weekend, which Democrat presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says was at the behest of Big Pharma. He tweeted on the weekend, quote, Tucker told the truth about how greedy pharma advertisers controlled TV news content and he lambasted obsequious newscasters for promoting jabs they knew to be lethal and worthless. Fox just demonstrated the terrifying power of Big Pharma. So the bureaucracy is obfuscating and the mainstream media is showing scant interest, if any at all. How else do we find out about the decisions politicians and Big Pharma made for us during COVID? Well, one way is to pursue them through the courts, which is exactly what my next guest is doing now. Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Melissa McCann from the Whitsunday Coast in North Queensland. She's a GP who saw early on that there were severe adverse reactions to these jabs. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me on. Melissa, what, do, what were the first signs to you that there were adverse reactions happening and when did this happen? So probably the first that I saw was in around the end of 21, um, being a rural area there, 
sort of widespread rollout was a bit later than in some of the city areas and, and probably in Queensland, I would say, more so in response to, to the mandates. So once mandates were set to be rolled out in about December, I think there was a really big uptake from sort of October, November period. And, um, and that's when I started to see a, a really unusual pattern of events, of, of people coming in, reporting, um, you know, a, a similar pattern, chest pain, um, which is not the norm from, from a flu vaccine rollout or something like that, and even some more serious events. And again, they were happening soon after these patients had reported that they had had a vaccine. But at the time, the entire medical profession almost were denying that there was any connection between these adverse reactions and the jabs. What made you think that there was a connection? Um, I think just what I was seeing. I mean, it seemed, uh, it just seemed to be happening so soon after a vaccine and in people who were previously young and healthy. And I mean, these are the types of events that could happen. I mean, you, you can get myocarditis or a blood clot or something like that without any sort of trigger, but just seeing a few patients who reported that they had a vaccine a few days prior and then they were developing these symptoms. And, um, you know, you, just, you start to see a bit of a pattern there. Okay, so you started to, you started to sympathise with these patients because they weren't uh, that nobody else was believing that there was a connection to the jabs. Is that right? Yeah, I then start to hear the struggles that some of these patients were having. Um, sometimes they were even reporting that they were seeing you know their specialists and. Um, there was there was a real reluctance to discuss any association with the vaccine, and of course, having it acknowledged medically is the only way to then be able to complete the claims, the compensation claims form. So that was was um, proving quite difficult for people. Um, some of the adverse events are not included on the claim, and then I was seeing people reporting that they were having a lot of difficulties with the claims process. Well, let's jump forward to now. Today, you filed a class action lawsuit in the. Federal Court of Australia, you instigated the uh, the lawsuit. What uh, what are you hoping to achieve achieve with this? I'm hoping that this lawsuit will finally um, allow a lot of you know what I think to be some of the important facts and and truth in in my opinion that that can be heard before a judge um, that this can be you know fairly. I guess, fairly reviewed and, and fairly judged in a, in a non, you know, sensationalist way in, in a very legal and correct manner. Um, and that these people that have been, that have had their lives completely turned upside down by what's happened, um, that they will have the ability to speak about that, that they'll have the ability to have their situations um, you know, heard and that if the case succeeds that they'll receive compensation. I mean, the most important thing out of all of this is that th these are people who've been left with significant injuries and they are struggling to get the medical help that they need. Well, let's just talk about that for a second because these are people who are struggling to get the legal help they need as well. I mean, these are people whose lives have been almost completely destroyed and some of them are debilitated. Some of them are suffering grief from having lost children or loved ones, they are in no condition to initiate or file a class action lawsuit. Why did you do it, Melissa? Um, exactly for that reason, Fred. I think, you know, it's um, 
what do they say, injustice to one man anywhere is injustice to all men everywhere. It's, it could have been me, it could have been my child, it could have been, and I think we can't just turn our backs on what's happening just because it, it didn't happen to us or, or we don't know someone that it's happened to. It's like, this has happened to these people. And, um, and I think to, to even imagine what the, the challenges that someone would face to bring something like that when they're injured, when they've lost their home trying to pay for medical care, they can't work anymore. Um, how on earth can they bring something like this? Yeah. Who's named in the affidavit? So there are three, um, three people named, Gareth, Antonio and Anthony or Tony. Um, these are the three named applicants. And then I guess sitting, sitting behind that are... Uh, hundreds of people who have signed on as um, group members. And the rule with class action lawsuits is that the uh, number of uh, applicants for compensation, should the case be successful, is anyone who fits the criteria. That could lead to thousands or even tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, I guess I expect that there could well be tens of thousands uh, who will enrol as, as group members. And you're exactly right. Everyone with an injury is able to do that. Um, we know from the TGA's public DAN database that there's more than 100,000 adverse events that have been reported. So I expect the number of people uh, who have perhaps been quietly battling with an injury or with grief, um, I suspect a large number will come forward. Now, pursuing a class action lawsuit is not a cheap thing to do and you need to post a surety in, in order to uh, file the lawsuit itself. Are you the guarantor behind this class action? Um, yes, that's correct. So I've legally signed what's called a litigation funding agreement um, to allow that the named applicants um, would not be themselves at risk of financial uh, you know, loss if the action does lose, um, because you're right, that is a requirement of starting a class action. And um, we've also started fundraising, so crowdfunding, and, um, and we've had some very generous donations to that, which has uh, all in all allowed the case to get to this important milestone. Yeah, well, we'll put the address for that crowdfunding up later. How many people do you think will, uh, do you think will be involved in this class action in the end? Um, look, I, I imagine it could be certainly tens of thousands just based on, uh, based on the number of events that have been reported. And I think more and more we're hearing, it seems everyone you speak to knows someone who has had an injury. And I suppose once there's the opportunity for those facts to be heard by a court, um, I think we'll have a greater understanding of whether those events, um, you know, which of those events have been caused by the vaccine. And I think there could be a very large number of people. And the defendant is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, is that correct? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so they call it a respondent in a civil matter and the respondents are, um, yes, yeah, so they're named on the, uh, on the filing and those documents are, are available. Um, so it is the former um, secretary for the Therapeutic Goods um, Agency, so um, John Skerritt um, and um, um, Brendan Murphy, a number of other um, personally named people within the sort of health department and then the Commonwealth of the Australian Government. Now, one of the key issues regarding the TGA that has emerged in the past few months is whether or not the TGA withheld information about these adverse reactions. What's your opinion about that? Um, well, that's exactly what this case will argue. So, um, 
I guess I have my own personal opinions about that, but it's important that those matters are heard properly by, by a judge and, and that there's a correct process. Um, but that is exactly what the pleadings outline and, um, and what this case will argue is that, um, that if the, I guess there's a consequence if the information isn't being provided to the public, then that interferes with informed consent and that interferes with um, the doctors and, the, and everyone who's providing these vaccines and needing to obtain informed consent. And those, those are the issues that will be argued before the court. And hypothetically speaking, if it's proved that the TGA did withhold information, what, was the, what were the consequences of that, of that information being withheld? Um, well, I guess all in, you know, withholding information is one aspect of what the, the case argues. It is a very, I have to say, um, a very comprehensive and thorough pleading that has been prepared by the barrister, Mr Joseph Manor, and um, done in a way that does justice, in my opinion, to the scope of injuries and, and the scale of harm. Um, so it is a very thorough pleading. It, it, it certainly covers issues such as statements that were made and information that um, wasn't made available to the public. Um, but it also covers a whole range of other scientific aspects related to the approvals process. And so my understanding is it would be the sum of all of those things that would decide um, what, what, what the consequences has been and whether that has in fact caused or contributed to um, the harm that has come to these people and, and that includes deaths and that includes serious adverse events. Do you have any indication about how um, strenuously the TGA and the federal government for that matter is going to defend this case? Oh, I could not even, uh, I could not speculate. On the one hand, I think all that this case is asking for is what was in fact promised, that if there was a serious adverse events, that people would be compensated for that. And I think we would all have expected that had we had one of these horrific life-changing events or, or deaths, that, that we would easily be able to access that compensation. So on the one hand, I feel like that's, that's all the case is asking for. Um, on the other hand, I guess I would expect that it would be very vigorously defended. Yeah, well, it's, it's, there's an irony there that you know, the government is meant to uh, represent the people and uh, it seems like um, in this case you might be representing them more than the government does. Now, just going back to March 2020, the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency issued quite an infamous statement back then warning all medical practitioners not to say anything that that is contrary to the official line that the vaccines are safe and effective. Now, I'm not sure you conformed to that, uh, that diktat, Melissa. How did you fly under the radar? Did you, did you speak out against the vaccines uh, from early on? And um, how did you avoid the, uh, the uh, attention of the authorities? Um, I'm not sure how I'm still working <laughs> in some ways uh, and how I've avoided attention. I, yeah, there's a part of me that feels like this is meant to be and maybe there's some, I don't know, greater purpose uh, making it possible for this action to happen. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I've been in some ways quite vocal about that, certainly initially not on any um, social media platform, but um, letters that I wrote from sort of end of 21, 
uh, I shared with, with large groups of closed general practitioners to ask if anyone else was seeing these types of events and ask if they would co-sign letters and, um, you know, groups of thousands. And I suppose any one of them could have taken issue with what I was saying and put a complaint about me. Um, I, well, in fact, I made a complaint about APRA themselves to their own health ombudsman um, at around that same time, just outlining what I thought was some quite compelling points that the statement made by APRA was, in my opinion, overreach and some examples of how I considered that was at risk or was in fact causing um, harm to the public. And um, When was that? You... Uh, that was no around November of 21 as well. And um, I think every single time, and I've written an enormous number of letters since then, and then obviously more recently been a lot more public about some of my concerns about vaccine safety and in the lead up to this action, that's obviously a bit more public. And I think there's been so many points along the way where I felt like, I, you know, I do need to be prepared that, that I may be suspended. I do need to be prepared for the consequences that would mean for my family. And um, But any time that I had even a moment of thinking, you know, what am I doing? This is this is a worry. You know, I would have another patient walk in um, with a life-changing adverse event, and you just can't, I just can't um, look squarely at that and not feel compelled to just continue to do everything that I can. You mentioned a minute ago that there might be a greater purpose involved. I mean, on one level, that's merely seeking justice for people who have been um, severely uh, disadvantaged by, by being coerced into these jabs or, or trusting the government. But uh, other than justice, is there a, a higher purpose for you? Um, oh, definitely. I mean, I have a, a strong belief in a higher purpose. I think so, uh, there's aspects of this, the, the horror that's happened over the past three years that I feel in, in many ways it's almost a battle of, of good versus evil. And I think we, um, you know, we do have to, I think, find the, you know, the moral standing in ourselves um, to be able to look squarely in the face of, of what this is and what this has done to our society and to, um, to these people that have suffered an injury. Um, we need to be able to look at that and call it what it is and, and do what we can. And we need to reassess the purpose of government as well and whether they can uh, tell us what um, what medicines to take and whether we're allowed to go to work or even leave our house. It's been a pretty horrific, to look back on it, it's pretty horrific, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's almost, it's almost unbelievable when you look back. And, you know, it's not, um, obviously the injured is something, you know, as a doctor, you know, I've, I've seen so many patients with injuries that that's something that I'm extremely passionate about, but there's equally people that have suffered enormous uh, harm, enormous, um, you know, just, I guess, damage psychologically, loss of their income, loss of businesses. This has split families, it's split communities and, um, and you know, spent the better part of, I think, half a trillion dollars of, um, you know, the hard-earned money of every Australian taxpayer uh, to come out with an astonishing excess death figures and, and I think a real complete disruption of the fabric of society. This is uh, this has not been a success. No. How long will this case take to see its course? Um, I understand that these things take generally between one to two years to run. So, um, yeah, it, it will certainly be some months and um, possibly a year or more. Well, even if you do win, it's hardly consolation for the people who have to wait for it because they're suffering immensely right now. Uh, exactly. Um, as I understand it, there is some mediation process that happens before 
the matter moves to a to a trial, and I mean it would be. In my mind, it would be an ideal outcome if that mediation meant um, an acknowledgement of the facts that have been presented in in this comprehensive pleading, and um, I guess some sort of settlement or arrangement that these people can more more swiftly access compensation for their injuries. Um, that would be my hope for it. Yeah. Well, good good luck with it, and uh, thank you for your time, Dr. Melissa McCann. It's a pleasure, Fred. Thank you. I'm joined now by Raylene Gotts from Toowoomba, whose daughter, Caitlin, passed away 51 days after her second Pfizer jab in November 2021. Raylene, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Raylene, uh, that's a, a heartbreaking T-shirt you've got there, uh, Justice for Caitlin. Tell me your story. I'm just a mum, Fred, so I am just or have always been a stay-at-home mum and put my heart and soul into raising Caitlin and her two younger brothers. So why did she take the uh, jab back in 2021? Because uh, one, it was mandated by Racing Queensland, who was not her direct employer, but her employer worked for Racing Queensland, so it was mandated both ways. Was she reluctant? She, it was at the AstraZeneca stage, so she waited. We didn't have any COVID in Toowoomba. I don't think we even had any COVID in Queensland at that stage. But she uh, waited for Pfizer because they were saying AstraZeneca was causing blood clots. Let's just wait for Pfizer. She waited and she waited until, right until the end. They had to be done by the 17th of, no, double dosed, by the 17th of December 2021, or she would have lost her position. So did she have an adverse reaction to the first jab? No, she didn't. So you would have been feeling quite confident going into the second. Then what happened? She had the second one three weeks after the first one. It was through Queensland Health Clinic and they at that time had the Otagi advice was three weeks later. I believe that significantly contributed to her death. She uh, had it for the first one at the Bailey Henderson Hospital in Toowoomba and the second one they'd moved to the underground car park of Clifford Garden Shopping Centre and she said, oh no, not Cliffo. And yeah, I was of the same opinion. And then she stayed in bed for four days after and one of her texts was she literally felt like she was dying for the four days immediately after her second Pfizer vaccine. And then for the next few weeks, she increasingly had shortness of breath and she presented to the Toowoomba Base Emergency uh, on the Saturday prior to her death. She died on a Wednesday. They treated her for asthma without doing any diagnostics. They didn't even do an ECG. They released her with steroids, a reliever and a preventer for asthma. She took those Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, dropped dead at work. There was a 51-day period, though. There must have been other visits to medical practices and GPs and so on in that time? No, she was a tough girl. She was an extremely tough girl. Very independent, very strong. And she just texted me a few times saying, uh, had, my, had her younger brother, who is a 
severe asthmatic. Had he had any worsening symptoms? She was having shortness of breath. She was feeling uh, not so well. Her friends were going out and having drinks. She didn't drink. She didn't because she was feeling too ill. But she told her employer she was feeling really ill from the jab. The employer told her they didn't believe her because it didn't affect them that way. And she was forced to work extra hours to make up for the time she'd taken off, even though she was a salaried employee, they wouldn't give her a sick pay. And she had just moved house. There was a lot going on. It was a big stressful time. Well, it's, it's being a parent, you know, there are stressful times in normal families, let alone one complicated by something like this. You must have felt underneath some sort of confidence that Caitlin was a tough young woman and would somehow pull through. Is that how you felt? I was completely asleep, Fred. We had no, I had no idea. I'm a disability worker, so I had my AstraZeneca in April 2021, and I'd encouraged the children to have theirs. And my, they, Caitlin did it because she was mandated and because she had to have it to go anywhere with her friends and just to return to normal life. But she waited. My, uh, her younger brother didn't have it. And no. I made her chronically ill brother, her youngest brother, have it. So I live every day, Fred, with regret. Well, yeah, you shouldn't feel the regret because everyone in Australia was being coerced, Raylene, and, and uh, you can't blame yourself for that. Has her employer showed any remorse? They never contacted us once. Incredible. The, uh, the, the um, medical facility that you went to, what, what was that experience like? I mean, the entire medical industry, it seems, was in denial uh, that there was any link between these adverse reactions and the actual jabs themselves? Well, it's a Queensland Health Clinic. So Queensland Health were given the uh, power to not write on cards, just to access the Australian Immunisation Register via their laptops. And they put the uh, record of vaccine and the batch numbers directly into individuals' Australian Immunisation Registers. And it was just very clinical. You know, there were 20 or 30 people in a room at a time. You'd wait, you'd go in, jab, go and wait again. And then the, there were two people, nurses perhaps, overseeing, and they just cracked jokes the whole time it, and had the whole room giggling and laughing, and then you left. This is to actually get the jab, you mean? But when, when Caitlin fell ill the few days before she died, what was that like? There was a lot of denial at that place as well, wasn't there? That was the emergency department mm -hmm. of the Toowoomba Base Hospital. They didn't do an ECG, they didn't do troponin, D-dimer, they didn't do anything. They just did regular COVID screening, bloods for alcohol, drugs, your basics. And it showed that uh, her platelets were clumped. I don't know what that means, but it's not normal. She was, ex had, she was extremely tachycardic. She uh, had, you know, her heart rate was through the roof, blood pressure extremely high. And they said, you have asthma. They gave her 16 doses of Ventolin every half hour for a few hours, which I know nothing, but I don't imagine that is very good if you uh, aren't 
yeah. suffering from asthma. Uh, did she, had she ever had asthma before? She did not have asthma. So they asthma. diagnosed her with asthma as a, 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 well, it could have been for a cover up for this adverse reaction. I, they just misdiagnosed her. So if they'd been more diligent on that day. Caitlin would be alive. Amazing. So you are part of a class action lawsuit. Can you uh, tell me what you're hoping to achieve with this? Justice. I want someone to be accountable. I um, cannot live with the fact that my girl was murdered. She was murdered. I had her, I raised her, I kept her safe. I educated her, did everything with her to make her a productive human being to go out into society. She was in uni, she was working her way through uni. She was uh, the most amazing human being, strong, strong, strong. She should have had another 70 years ahead of her. And she goes to work, does what is mandated to be at work, to earn money, to pay tax, drops dead, and then the next day they just hire someone else. No one says sorry, no one acknowledges it, and no one's accountable. If she had dropped dead in my house, I'd be up for charges. Why is no one accountable? That's what I want. I want accountability, Fred. What's the impression you have of the power of the state these days, Raylene? It's all-encompassing. They have all the power, zero compassion. Do you think, do you have confidence that justice will prevail in the end? No. But what am I going to do, Fred? Do I lie in bed and just cry and uh, hope to go see Caitlin again pretty soon? I, I can't do that because I have uh, two boys and I've got to fight to make the world a better place for them. How are your boys coping? My, uh, I have, they're now 21 and 16. The 21-year-old went nine months vomiting every single day. He couldn't keep food down. They got to the, uh, Caitlin's body to the scene before I did. They were there on the footpath with her and the police and the ambulance and it wasn't very good and that'll be with them forever. They'll be with me forever. The 16-year-old, he's just, uh, immersed himself into gaming and they're, they're good kids. They're really, really, really good kids and they're extremely awake, but they'll have this the rest of their lives and uh, they aren't interested in having kids at this point in life because what's the point? Well, if there's one um, small glimmer of positivity about all this, it is that there is quite a strong family of people in your situation who are getting together now, some of them around this class action lawsuit. So I hope you draw some strength from that. Raylene Gotts, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Spectator TV is up later this evening. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, -E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Damien Curry 
Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.